Hello, everyone, and welcome to Headwise, the weekly video cast and podcast of the National Headache Foundation. I'm Dr. Lindsay Weitzel. I'm the founder of Migraine Nation, and I have a history of chronic and daily migraine that began at the age of four. Today is our monthly headache news episode with Dr. Tim Smith. Hello, Dr. Smith. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here. We are always so excited when Dr. Smith is here. He's a regular on our show because of his extensive experience in migraine clinical trials. As the CEO of Study Metrics Research, he is also a board member of the National Headache Foundation. And we have a few really awesome new studies to talk about today. We do dedicate about one episode a month to the latest headache research, migraine or headache related uh, medical publications or FDA approvals, etc. And we have a few things to report to you today. So let's get right to it. So Dr. Smith, an interesting study was just published in Cephalalgia, looking at the effectiveness of aranumab or Amovig in people with what was called abrupt onset unremitting treatment refractory headache with migraine phenotype. I think most of us would often call that NDPH or maybe post-traumatic headache. Um, so this was an important study because these are some of the people in our community who we really don't have much in the way of effective treatments for. So what did this study find? So this uh, this study was uh, it was done in, uh, by a bunch of investigators at uh, some Irish headache clinics, and in in the in the UK, uh, the the uh, any patients with problematic headache are basically referred to these headache uh, clinics, and they have them geographically located throughout the the country. And what the uh, what they did was they did chart audits to look at patients who had presented with this new onset uh, of, of uh, persistent daily headache uh, disorder. And uh, these were patients who went from, basically th they could have had pre-existing migraine, but it was not daily and unremitting, uh, mm -hmm. unrelenting, and, um, or, or not, as the case may be. And uh, they s suddenly started presenting with, uh, they could point to a day when this uh, started. Some of it was traumatic, uh, traumatically induced, and some was not. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are, as you pointed out, are patients that we just we don't have um, approved or you know reliable treatments, and so we pretty much try everything if we're in the headache clinics. That's what we do, and that's mm -hmm. what these Irish investigators were doing. And they had they identified eighty two patients uh, across their uh, clinics, and they did chart audits on these. Their their usual uh, approach was to start with 70 milligrams of aranumab and then go to 140 um, if they didn't achieve 30% uh, reduction in uh, their migraine days after three months. And um, uh, what they did was chart audits and looked at uh, basically how they fared. And they did systematically in their clinics, they do quality of life instruments along with, with uh, disability questionnaires and impact questionnaires. And uh, the interesting finding from this uh, in this highly refractory uh, group of patients was that about a third of them, 35% showed an mm -hmm. improvement in their quality of life scores without side effects. And so um, we would look at that and compare that to our results on migraine studies. And we would say, wow, that's not very good, you know, 35%, because we're used to seeing 55 to 65% 
uh, responder rates in, in the migraine population. Uh, but this actually showed that uh, as many as a third of the patients with this new persistent daily headache or uh, po persistent post-traumatic headache uh, uh, phenotype had uh, um, basically uh, got substantial improvement. So, um, and th that is a significant uh, population of uh, percentage of the population for this group. So right. sort of encouraging tells us that it's sort of at least um, kind of opinion and consensus that it's worthwhile, you know, trying a, a, a CGRP blocker on these patients and hoping for the right. best. Right. So to reiterate what you said, that compared to the results in the strictly migraine population, it, it didn't perform quite as well. But for this group of patients, which is why I love to report this these kinds of studies, because we don't get to report very often on things that are successful for um, this group of people. So it's so great to be able to say this. It did have uh, about a 35% or 35% of them showed improvements that were great enough that it improved their quality of life, which is a great thing uh, when you are working with a group of people who are so treatment refractory. So this was, I was excited to report that study uh, on, on today's episode. Um, should we move on to the next one or was there anything else on that study that you wanted to talk about? I guess the only other thing was that they, you know, they um, they allowed patients to discontinue after six months. They tried to mm -hmm. keep them on for at least six months, and uh, so that's the thirty five percent. And and uh, some patients persisted for a while longer, just electively. But they tried to get, if they didn't see a thirty percent improvement uh, by six months after increasing the dose to one hundred forty milligrams then, you know, they let the patients opt uh, out of that. So for clinicians out there, for patients who are interested in this, it, it may take more than one or two or three rounds of treatment uh, before you would give up on it. Uh, so if just a little bit of advice on, the, right. sometimes we don't know how long to tell people to go, but this paper suggested that six months was a reasonable time frame to try it. Okay. Um, so those of us, uh, we're going to move on to another study now that, that recently came out. So those of us who are severely impacted by migraine know that it can be very upsetting when our children are also diagnosed with migraine. So there is a new study that was released that looks specifically at children who inherited familial hem hemiplegic migraine. Uh, earlier, I said that perfectly. Sorry, that didn't come out right. Uh, hemiplegic migraine is a rare type of migraine that comes with motor weakness as part of the aura phase. Um, and so in this study, investiga investigators identified kids who inherited this from their parents and then looked to see how it manifested in the children. So can you tell everyone what they found in this study? Sure, and, and this was, so we're kind of got an international flair today. This is an, an Italian yeah. study, and uh, which is great. And uh, there's some respected headache specialists and researchers there. And uh, they had identified a cohort uh, of uh, patients, uh, nine patients in these clinics in Italy. And uh, they uh, did a, a huge evaluation on them and did genetic analysis to understand um, if they had an identifiable mutation that caused their familial hemiplegic migraine. And we know there are uh, 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 a few subtypes that are identifiable and 
and at least seven of the ones in this study had uh, one of the two most common uh, genetic defects that we uh, know are, is associated with this disorder. Um, and uh, then they followed these patients uh, for an, a little over seven years on average and uh, to look at what their outcomes were, were like. And uh, they measured things like uh, attack duration and the number of attacks uh, that the patients had. They found a wide variety on both of those uh, uh, measures, some attacks as brief as 10 minutes of weakness uh, they go with the headache, and mm -hmm. some that lasted as much as three weeks. So when we mm -hmm. say this is uh, a version, a complicated aura, it is, but this can be much longer than your standard one hour or less aura that we typically think of with the visual disturbance or the tingling sensations mm -hmm. that some people may get. Uh, so this is, you know, if you have a child that looks like they've had a stroke when they have a migraine and it lasts for three weeks, this is this is very serious and, you very, know, right. scary. And you also worry about, you know, what what kind of damage is this potentially doing to their brains, you know, and that and uh, those kinds of things. Um, and so these uh, researchers did us a favor and followed these folks for for a long period of time, uh, a little over seven years on on average. And uh, they showed that most of the patients with uh, with childhood onset of uh, this uh, familial hemiplegic migraine, uh, turns out they experienced uh, infrequent and non-severe attacks that uh, didn't require preventive treatment, preventive treatment, mm -hmm. and they tended to outgrow the problem over time. Um, and I think very importantly, uh, they also, over this longer period of time, they showed that uh, no other neurologic um, phenomena or disorders uh, occurred, and there were no uh, signs of neurologic deterioration or injury. Uh, so these kids wound up having he healthy brains as they went along. So um, that was, you know, very reassuring. And I think uh, there may be, you know, parents out there with uh, children who have this, so it'd be, you know, very uh, gratified and pleased to to know the results of uh, of that of that analysis. Right. That was what I liked about that study. That study was actually very encouraging. It was a little bit surprising maybe to see how well these children actually did, given that they had familial hemiplegic migraine genes. So I, I thought that was a great study and, and maybe a little bit encouraging for some of these families and also seemed like a lot of work. They followed those kids for a very long time. <laughs> so big study. Yeah. Um, so a, another study moving on. Um, they another another group followed um, some people to look at visual hypersensitivity in people taking monoclonal antibodies, which so many of us in the migraine and headache community are doing now. And um, the the goal was to see if our visual related symptoms like photophobia uh, decreased during treatment with the monoclonal antibodies and to see if this was related to a decrease in, in other migraine symptoms. What did they find in this study? Sure. This, so the, uh... This group is from the Netherlands. Uh, the, they're a quite uh, notable group out of Leiden uh, mm -hmm. that have uh, been on the front uh, leading edge of a lot of uh, migraine research for decades. And uh, this uh, group uh, did uh, a questionnaire study for, uh, it was prospectively done, but it was a questionnaire study for patients that had been selected to uh, go on either arinumab or um, uh, freminazumab. And um, they uh, uh, 
this look, this questionnaire was called the Leiden, uh, let me read this so I get it correct. It's uh, the Leiden Visual Sensitivity Scale and they abbreviated LVISS and uh, being from Mississippi, I hope they pronounce that Elvis, but uh, I don't know um, if they didn't, they should. Thank you very much. Um, and so uh, anyway, they, they did this questionnaire at baseline and then at three months. And uh, what they showed was that there was uh, substantial uh, decreases, uh, significant decreases in the uh, not only the ictal or or the uh, light sensitivity, visual sensitivity uh, during the attack, but also in the what we call the interictal phase, which is in between attacks. And so that that was uh, that's a very instructive uh, finding because you know we do see patients with a lot of this we call it interictal burden. So it's maybe a lot of things that are not going right. Uh, while the patient's not having uh, migraine attacks in between attacks. And uh, visual sensitivity can be one of those. And uh, so being on uh, a CGRP blocker uh, looks like it benefits that symptom as well, whether or not patients are having a migraine. And we know that CGRP is involved in the, in the there's some science showing that it is involved with the visual sensitivity piece. So um, this kind of ties that all together. So if it's involved, if you block it, then it should get better, and indeed it does. We do measure things like something called the most bothersome symptom. It's the most bothersome non-pain non symptom with migraine, and we know that most of the uh, modern treatments that we use do improve that as well. Uh, that's what we look at, and, and the one that's most common is photophobia or light sensitivity. Right. Uh, so, uh, But this this study shows that interictal uh, if you do the test interictally, the, the scores improve as well. All right. That is good news. Um, I bet some people already knew that about themselves. They did notice that they yeah. weren't as sensitive to light when they started their monoclonal antibody medication. So that is an interesting study that we decided to throw in today. We do have one last one that we're going to discuss. This one's out of Australia. Until you mentioned it, I did not notice. We do not have any studies from the United States today. Will you, <laughs> maybe, maybe next month. Um, so this one is out of Australia. Um, they found, a group found some interesting differences in hormone levels between people with and without migraine in a meta-analysis. Now that means that they use data that was already published to run their comparisons. So let's talk about the differences they found because they are pretty interesting. Yeah, so uh, they looked at a total of 29 studies that met their definition and they um, um, this involved over 700 people with migraine and uh, almost 600 controls. And uh, these were studies that had information about estrogen concentrations, other hormones, progesterone, and, and then also uh, testosterone in males, and also looked at uh, cortisol levels, uh, which we know is uh, kind of our stress hormone uh, that uh, that everyone has. And all of these are controlled by, uh, they have a hypothalamic um, link, that is the part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which governs a lot of the automatic, rhythmic, and cyclic uh, functions of our bodies. Um, uh, that uh, all of these hormones are are regulated through um, either a direct or indirect uh, link to the hypothalamus. And so looking at this would give us insight as to, you know, sort of the general health and uh, proper functionality of the hypothalamus or that part of the brain in our migraine patients. And uh, they did find some interesting uh, things. First of all, the estrogen concentrations in, in women were 
reduced uh, uh, in migraine with migraine in, uh, in migraine patients as compared to controls, uh, basically during what they call the luteal phase. This is right. the second half of the menstrual cycle. Uh, it's basically from ovulation leading up to the menstrual period. And uh, uh, those levels were reduced in, in patients with migraine um, and, and to a significant extent when uh, compared to non-migraine uh, controls. There was no difference in progesterone and in males, there were no differences in testosterone. But when they looked at the uh, cortisol levels, there's a diurnal uh, change in cortisol. That means every day kind of right. peaks in the morning and um, and gets better over, it goes down overnight, and it basically is a response to stress. And uh, they found that uh, these levels uh, of cortisol, the stress hormone, were um, elevated in both men and women uh, uh, compared to uh, non-migraine controls. Uh, so the authors sort of surmise that this indicates some kind of perturbed hypothalamic function or that that basal part of the brain that controls some of our our instincts and and cyclic uh, um, trends for our for our physical functioning um, and it may have something to do with uh, some of the day night phenomena we have with uh, when migraines begin um, mm -hmm. also we know cluster headaches are also this is a, a involved in that uh, abnormalities of that diurnal rhythm of cortisol uh, but this was uh, this was looking at a strictly migraine population, so uh, very interesting. I, I, it's I, it may raise more questions than it answers, but yeah. it certainly suggests that uh, you know that there may be a hypothalamic basic hypothalamic um, abnormality that may be driving some of the hormonally related and stress related uh, cycles of uh, migraine attacks. I think I think it is very interesting, but I think that one of the questions that some people uh, watching or listening might be thinking is, um, how do we know that this variation or the differences in cortisol between people with migraine and people without um, isn't because I'm waking up in the morning and I'm so stressed wondering if a migraine is going to ruin my day? And so I'm wondering, uh, do we know that? Is there something about this study where they they know that, or or is this something we just don't know? Yeah, I think it's uh, the answer is we just don't know. I didn't see anything from this study that uh, really answered those kinds of questions. It's mm -hmm. it's the it's the typical chicken or the eggs, you know, thing. So is yeah. you know having a migraine is stressful, you know, and uh, uh, you know having stress, you know, triggers migraines. We know for a lot of people, and uh, so did the cortisol you know, the, are these elevations up because these are stressed people that have migraine or is it, you know, uh, indicating some abnormality of the base of the brain uh, that is lending to these attacks um, being triggered by by stress. Mm -hmm. So clearly more work needs to be done, but I, I uh, and people are working on this. So hopefully we'll have additional news to share on that uh, as, as more um, revelations come forward. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith. This was very informative. I hope everyone found something that interested them. Uh, thank you for joining us this week. And please join us again next week for the podcast and videocast of the National Headache Foundation. Bye-bye, everybody.